Bibles and open to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And it's always a blessing and a privilege to be able to, to come here and worship with you brothers and sisters down at Christ Our Hope. It is definitely refreshes my soul to be here with you. Our text this morning will be Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through chapter 9, verse 1. Follow along with me and hear the word of God. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man might suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let us pray once more. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that much would be made of Christ, that we would see the call of Jesus upon our lives, and that by your Spirit you would convict our hearts, you would encourage our hearts to look unto Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we enter into this passage here in Mark chapter 8, we need to put on the lens of the disciples here. We want to enter into this scene and see this as they saw it. Picking up here in Mark chapter 8, we're coming just previously off the heels of Peter's great confession. You are the Christ. Matthew would add in his, the son of the living God. And so there's this real high moment. And then comes this account where Peter is called Satan, and Jesus gives some clarity to them. After, of course, is the transfiguration, another high point. And so sandwiched in between here is Jesus' first prediction of what is going to happen to him when he enters into Jerusalem. I've titled this morning's message, It Will Cost You Everything. And if you are somebody that likes to take notes and enjoys kind of structure and headings, let me give you a first heading here in verses 31 through 33. And this is gospel confusion. This is what we're going to see first and foremost with Peter. Really, Peter, the representative of all of the disciples. In this first path, this first section here, we notice gospel confusion. Upon Peter's great confession, Jesus sees that he must disclose to them what is going to take place soon. The Christ or Messiah had very uh, eschatological overtones. And so they're thinking one thing. When Peter makes this confession, he's not saying you are the Christ, you are the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That's not what's in his mind. You are the Christ, you are the restorer of the fortunes of Israel. You are the fulfillment. You are going to, you are going to make, bring the kingdom. And so he has kind of a sense, as is seen here, of gospel confusion. 
This, again, is the first time that Jesus will foretell his death and resurrection. It will happen two other times, one in each chapter here. This is kind of the interlude in Mark, chapters 8, 9, and 10, on the road to Jerusalem. Each chapter, Jesus will tell them what is going to happen to him. And so for obvious reasons, as we will see here in these, these verses, that the disciples did not understand what it meant when they confessed him as the Christ. They had a partial understanding here. And Jesus tells them, look again at verse 31, he began to teach them, that the, and he refers to himself, the Son of Man. This title is taken from Ezekiel and from Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is standing before the Ancient of Days, and all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. And Jesus takes this divine title, applying it to himself. In reference of the Son of Man, he will tell them four truths that outline the path of the Christ. So they know that he's the Christ. There's the confession that he's the Christ, but now he's about to turn their world upside down and rightly show them what must happen. So notice here the four truths that he gives concerning the path of the Christ. First, he says that he will suffer many things. Now the disciples are hearing this now for the first time, and they're thinking... No doubt, this isn't hard to grasp. He's going to suffer. We've seen him suffer. We've been walking with him since chapter 1 of Mark, as as he's called us. We've also been the cause of his suffering at times. They could look at each other. Remember after he fed 4,000 and we were on the boat arguing about how we're going to get food? And he looks at us and says, Do you not remember? So, suffer many things. That's not hard for them to grasp. Then he says that the Son of Man will be rejected. Again, not a hard line for them to grasp. They can even recall, remember when he sent us out two by two and we needed to wipe the dust off of our feet after we were rejected, bringing his message. We get it. We understand that the Son of Man will be rejected. Do you remember when we went to Nazareth and he went home and he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he enters the synagogue on that day? Isn't this the carpenter's son? A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Yes, he was rejected even in his own hometown. The scribes and the Pharisees have been coming after him for quite some time. They reject him. They say he's in league with the devil. So they've experienced this as well as Christ is telling them these things. And then here's the third thing that Jesus tells them. That he was first to suffer many things. He was to be rejected and then to be killed. And they're thinking, oh, wait, what? They pause now at this point. And they are thinking clearly the way Peter responds. That's not how this works. That's not the path of the Christ. You are the Christ. We just said you are the son of the living God. Peter is thinking this is not in the plan. And it's as though Peter comes to him after hearing this thing. He says, you're going to be killed? How are we to restore the fortunes of Israel if you're going to die? Mark makes it very clear that Jesus said this to them plainly, verse 32. This was no parable. This wasn't a cryptic saying. But before he, after he says he's going to be killed, he says, and after, rise. Three days rise. And the disciples are thinking, wait, what, you're going to be killed? It's as though they didn't even hear the last part. 
They don't even hear this fourth truth that he says. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and you're talking back and forth and they say something and you just get fixated on that thing that they said? And then they keep talking, but you're not listening anymore. You're actually thinking about how you're going to respond to that one line that they said. They totally miss the fourth thing that Jesus says here, that he will rise from the dead. They're focused upon you're going to die? And Peter walks up to Jesus, verse 32, takes him aside, puts his arm around Jesus and says, hey, come with me for a minute. I need to tell you something. I need to correct you, Jesus. Suffering, rejection, we get it. That's fine. We can, we can deal with that. But be killed? That's not the plan. We're not going to make Israel great. We can't do that. How is that going to happen if you die? Peter's thinking, Jesus, I've been around maybe a little longer than you. He's probably older. He's married. He tends to be the oldest of the disciples. That's why he's the spokesman. He says, let me give you some advice. You can't be telling people you're going to die. Who wants to follow that? We didn't sign up for a death march. I left my fishing business. Jesus, I actually won't let that happen. Oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. So confused. This is the, the one who makes the great confession. And Jesus blesses him. And then in the very next passage, Jesus calls him Satan. Oh, Peter. Has Isaiah 53 slipped your mind? Bruised for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He was cut off out of the land of the living. And so what we see here in Peter's response to Jesus is gospel confusion. Peter sees the crown before the cross. Peter at this time has a theology of glory that comes before a theology of the cross. And notice with me again, verse 33, how does Jesus respond to him? And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. In the presence of all the disciples, Peter is publicly put back into his place. And in rebuking Peter, he's rebuking them all. Peter's just the spokesperson. And he says these words, Get behind me, Satan. Oh, what a chilling thing to hear from your master. What a chilling thing to hear from the Son of God. Jesus is looking at him and he is saying, in this moment, you are speaking as though you are the devil himself. You are not thinking upon the things of God, but the things of man. What's the issue with Peter? What's the issue that we see here in Peter? Let me give you a few. Peter placed himself in front of Jesus. Hence, Jesus says, get behind me. You don't even belong beside me. Get behind me. Peter tries to dissuade Jesus from his mission. This is the work of the devil. Peter is focused on comfort, triumph, and glory. That's where his mind is at. Remember when Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What are the three things in which Satan tempts Jesus? Bread for comfort. 
He tells him to call down angels for triumph. Gain the whole world for glory. Peter is speaking in the same way. So when we think about these verses here in this gospel confusion, we see that it was murky to them. They did not understand it. Brothers and sisters, not much has changed in 2,000 years. This gospel confusion in the first century goes on in our world today. And it's not that a lot of people outright reject Jesus or the gospel. If you think about it, ask somebody if they want to go to heaven when they die. Any sane person will say yes. Ask somebody if they want to be loved unconditionally. Well, yes. Ask somebody if they want to be forgiven of their sins and all that they've ever done. Those are simple answers to affirm. Yes. It's not the outright rejection of the gospel that we see in our world today that's the problem. It's confusion. It's a partial gospel. It's a gospel of comfort, triumph, and glory at the expense of a cross. It's a crown but no cross, glory before agony, exaltation before humility, comfort without conformity, triumph without trials. Because that's a gospel that sells. A God that loves everything, hates nothing, gives all and requires little. A Jesus that heals, saves, and grants the wishes. A gospel that fits nicely into our already established lives. A gospel that costs little but gives high returns. The appeal becomes that of a salesman. Come to Jesus to get fixed. Everything will get better. Add a little bit of Jesus to your life. Try Him out. 30-day money-back guarantee. If you weren't satisfied, at least you gave it a shot. Cross, suffering, agony, who wants that stuff? Peter doesn't. This is gospel confusion here. And we see it in Peter. And so Jesus responds to provide clarity. Notice with me in verses 34 through 37, from gospel confusion to gospel commitment, Jesus gives the clarity here. He turns the dial up to 10, as it were. And says some of the most important words that we will ever hear. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Now Jesus says, this is going public. This is much bigger than Peter and and the 12 that are confused. I want everybody with ears to hear to hear this. So Jesus says, disciples and everybody else. This is so important. He says, if anyone would come after me, what does he mean by that? If anyone is to be a disciple, if anyone is to be a follower, we, we give that title a Christian. You see, Peter needed to step back. If anyone would come after me, follow behind me, to follow Christ is to put Christ ever before us. I am second. Actually, I am last should be the attitude of the disciple, the follower of Christ. He says, if anyone would come after me and be my follower, he gives three criteria of being a disciple. And he says here, let him deny himself, 
Let him take up his cross, die to self, and follow me. Devote yourself. So in summary, this is what Jesus is saying here in this passage. To follow him, it will cost you everything. The call of Christ upon the life of any person is all of us. It's not partial commitment. It's not partially in. It's not half in and half out. No, Jesus says it is everything. So let's break these three criteria apart. First, he says to deny self. What does this mean? What does this look like in our lives? Whoever, he says again, let him deny himself. This means to refuse oneself. One commentator on this said, quote, it is not self-rejection or self-hatred, nor is it even the disowning of particular sins. It is to renounce the self as the dominant element in life. It is to place the divine will before self-will. When Jesus says deny self, this is the same word that Peter used when interrogated by the little girl. Do you know the man? And when Peter denies Jesus, he is saying essentially, I don't know the man. And Jesus is saying in this sense, we must be able to say as a follower of Christ, I, have, I am denying myself. I don't know that person. It is a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. Another way to put this of denying self, it is a sustained willingness to say no to oneself to be able to say yes to God and His commands. If we are to obey and be followers of Christ after the manner in which Christ commands, we must be able to say that I am not my own. But I have been bought with a price. I belong to another. Jesus is Lord is not just a biblical statement. That means that I belong to him. I am under his lordship. I am his servant. I am his slave. And he is a good, good master. It is submission to Christ. Oh, this begins at conversion. This begins in faith and repentance. Oh, and it is the lifelong process of sanctification that we walk in, looking to Christ, turning from self, turning to God, setting our minds not on the things of man like Peter is, but setting our mind on the things above, living in faith, growing in faith, submission to Him. Practically speaking, what this means is that our life is in God's hands. Gospel commitment requires that all of life be orchestrated in, through this understanding of denying self. And it is a daily battle. And if we are just focused on trying to deny ourselves and not look to Jesus as the source in which we are empowered to do so, we will fail. That's just the strength of self-will. No, it is only through understanding the gospel that we are even able by the Spirit within us so what does this mean even in the most practical sense? Our life choices. The school that we go to or don't go to. Our job, our relationships, what I do, what I don't do. is all filtered to this gospel commitment of denying oneself, living for others. Again, Jesus is our Lord. We belong to another. I am not the master of my own life. That's a scary proposition. 
If we think about it, when we did walk in that way at one time, how did it go for us? Not so good. So second, first one is deny self. Second criteria of being a disciple, die to self. He says to take up his cross. We who've certainly been in the church for uh, many years, we, we understand what this means. And so did the disciples, too, in the first century. They knew the cross was the instrument of death. It was a capital punishment, crucifixion by the Romans. He did not need to explain this in any great detail. Maybe if we were speaking to somebody that isn't so Christianized or uh, somebody that wouldn't understand what this means. It's important that we would understand that when in the first century when a person was sentenced to death by crucifixion, they had to take the cross beam and they had to place it upon their back just as Jesus does. And they tell them to march. And once the cross beam was placed upon the back of an individual, there was no turning around. There was no saying, well, I don't think this is going to work, or I'm going to appeal to the Supreme Court on this one. No, the sentence was rendered, and that person had to march. And this is what Jesus has in mind. As, this, as we are to take up the cross, the beam is upon the shoulders of his disciples to the place of execution. Now I want to comfort you with this, believer. Jesus does not require of his people to go where he has not already been. He too carries the cross. And he too carried his cross and suffered and died that we would be made right with a holy God. But what Jesus is saying here in this context, he is looking at the disciples in the crowd and says, be prepared to die. Be prepared to die if you want to be a disciple. Again, once the cross is placed upon the back of the person, there is no turning around. Any man who sets his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying there's no turning back. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. But we must understand it's always a cross before a crown. It is suffering before glory. We too have been called. It is, as Paul tells the Philippians, it has not only been granted to us to believe, but also to suffer for his name's sake. To a lesser degree here, if the cross is the criteria, this is a call to endure hardship faithfully. No, here in the United States, we're not in fear of our lives over being followers of Jesus. We fear even greater things, just inconvenience at times. Let us not fear the hardships, but let us endure hardships. But ultimately, Christ is saying, we must be willing to leave it all. We only truly start living for Christ when we strap the cross to our shoulders and say, whatever you want, Lord, whatever you want. At this point, we identify with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is the crucified life that we are called to live. I think it's important to note that Jesus does not lower the standards in order to gain a bigger following. 
Nor does he seek to soften the edges or, or the message in order that more people might hear. No, Jesus doesn't tickle the ears of his listeners. He says, refuse yourself, run from yourself, resist yourself, put a cross upon your back and be prepared to die. It will cost you everything. Um, think for a moment what the disciples are hearing and the crowds are hearing. And they're having to process this. Now, we, we, we get to read and we know how the story ends. They're having to walk this out in time and space, and it's a challenge for them. Let's keep that in mind. Let's also keep in mind that we must communicate the same gospel, the same gospel commitment to all people. It will cost you everything. Third criteria, he says, devote yourself. He says, follow me. Emulate me. Obey my teaching. When he commissions the, the apostles at the end of Matthew, he tells them, make disciples, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded. Follow in my footsteps. So what does that mean? Well, if we would just go back to the previous section here, what did he say? To be a follower of Christ means be ready to suffer many things. Be rejected. Possibly killed. This is the gospel commitment that Jesus calls on everyone to have. There's no room for straddling the fence. There's no room for being a Sunday morning Christian and living in the world with no cares. There's no part-time followers of Jesus. I know in my life, I, I, I went through a really rough stretch from about 16 to 21 years old. I was wrestling with being the, the implications of the gospel. I wasn't foolish enough to, you know, I knew the commitment. I knew what I, what I had been taught, what I had gone through. And I was really wrestling with, with one foot in the world and, and one foot in the church. And I would, I would sing and I would worship on Sundays and I would live like a devil during the week. But I would be okay at youth group in midweek. And so on Sundays and Wednesdays, I did the church thing. And then every other day, I, 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 was, I was hanging with the wrong crowd. I wanted to be popular in school. And, and so I was really wrestling at a time where I knew that my life was inconsistent. And my dad came to me one day, and it wasn't just one day, but after observing for time and time, and we would have conversations, and sometimes they'd get really heated. And I remember one night he looked at me and said, Jonathan, you are a hypocrite. You are living inconsistent. And I, looked, I said, I know. And he says, you know what is, what is required of you, what God requires of you if you are a follower of Christ. I didn't have trouble with, with believing. I had trouble with the, with the moral implications of being a follower of Christ. I wanted it all. I wanted salvation and what I wanted. And so I fought this inward battle. And we had a conversation that one night. And he, and he just penned me and he said, are you all in? And I remember looking at him, him and my mom, 16 years old. And I said, I know what's required. And I can't do it. I don't want to do it. And so I said, I guess I'm all out. And I walked this prodigal journey for five years. Painful. Until Christ laid hold of my heart. And I heard the gospel like I had never heard it before. And it wasn't about following rules. It was the glory of God. 
It was the holiness of God that convicted me of my sin. It was the love of Jesus. And really, it was the love of a praying mother. And so as I had, the Lord had brought me back and, and, and I knew that it was, it was all of life, my only prayer was, God, thank you for saving me. I don't want to be a pastor ever. It's the one thing I would please not, I've seen it, anything but that. Never say never. Understand this, Christian, it will cost you everything. Where are you this morning? For many of us, this is a reminder we all need. We're not all the way over there. We just sometimes need a recalibration. We need to be reminded of the commands of Christ. But maybe for some of us, we are straddling that fence. One foot in the world and one foot in Christ. Let me tell you, if that's where you're at, you are exactly where Satan wants you. He doesn't want you to be an atheist. No, that's too obvious. Maybe just an apathetic follower. A fence straddler. Friend, your commitment to Christ requires all of life. And at this point, any, as the disciples are hearing this, as the crowds are hearing this, as any logical person is is having to grapple with what's being stated here, we must ask the question, why? Why would someone... Say, sign me up for this. What would compel a sane person to say, yeah, this sounds great? What would make somebody willing to pay this this cost? Well, Jesus answers that, verses 35 through 37. He asks two questions. He gives one statement, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What Jesus is saying here is because eternity is at stake. It's not about the comfort of this life. We are talking about something far greater than just the here and now. This is eternity. Jesus says in verse 35, lose your life to save it. This is the paradox of the Scriptures. He's saying if you put yourself first, you will ultimately lose. Paradox of Christianity, lose to win. Die to live. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. If any among you want to be great, must be a servant of all. The great young missionary who gave his life, Jim Elliott, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story and his famous quote, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. I would say that's Jim Elliott's summary of what Jesus is saying right here. Two questions, verse 36 and 37. Two questions, same answer. What Jesus is saying here, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing. Nothing. What Jesus is also implying here and saying is that your soul is of greater value than all the riches of the world. You are, you are an eternal soul. This is your life. This is your existence created in the image of God. You are more valuable than all that this world has to offer. Some of us need to be reminded of this. Maybe we think of ourselves as worthless and nobody insignificant. 
We compare ourselves with others and we're constantly discouraged. Let me remind you, you are an eternal soul. The body is a shell that is wasting away and as the years go by, gravity is always working against us. But you are an eternal soul of immeasurable value. But if you give yourself to the things of this world, you will lose it all. To forfeit the soul here, what Jesus says, means to give up the certainty of eternal life with God. So, here's the main point of even this morning's message. To follow Jesus, it will cost you everything in this life. To not follow Jesus, it will cost you everything in the life to come. What will you do? Where do you stand this morning? What are you doing? Are you all in? Have you been straddling the fence and working out some of these things? To the believer here who is weary and that cross beam feels heavy upon your shoulders and you feel like, man, I'm, I'm struggling to make it through the day. I want to encourage you that when you woke up this morning, you were the closest to eternity that you've ever been to beholding the face of Christ. And as you make it to tomorrow, which you will, you are one step closer to seeing Jesus. And that cross will be lifted off your shoulders. And the time will come where you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because it is with great joy that he will present you blameless to himself. Let me encourage you with that. As there are times that gospel commitment feels heavy and hard. Denying oneself. Dying to oneself. Devoting oneself. And this is why we need the communion of the saints. This is why we need the Lord's day. This is why we need fellowship. Because as one brother is struggling, we can come alongside and we can help. And we can say, hey, we're in this together. It's not a bunch of individuals on the path. It's the church as we are seeking to glorify God and live lives of gospel commitment and faithful obedience. So are we living with gospel confusion? Or are we seeking to be living with gospel commitment. The evidence, I would say, is found in our gospel confession. Look again, and we'll begin to close here in verse 38. Here's the great confession. He says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. One of the ways in which... Um, you know, can help in understanding meaning of a particular passage or text. I got this from R.C. Sproul, but to read it in reverse or invert it. And so, so instead of maybe in the negative, look at it in the positive. And so what would this verse say if it was framed in the other way? Jesus would be saying this, whoever confesses me, identifies with me, takes a stand for me, is a witness for me, be assured of this, I will be a witness before the Father. I will confess him as my, my as belonging to me. So that when I come back and bring with me the host of the redeemed, you will be among them. Jesus is saying, that's my promise to you. For there are many standing there before Christ that they were to see the kingdom come in its power. Some people have gone in the verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9 and some 
crazy territory. Could be the transfiguration. Could be the 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 death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, which is probably what he's speaking of here. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And now the kingdom of God is among us. This is the great confession that we make. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is King. And we follow him. So I had asked you just to think and put on the lens of the disciples as they heard this. Again, we know the story. But as they're processing this, what are they thinking? This is radical to their minds. This is a paradigm shift. He has to tell them three times. And then they still don't get it until afterwards. And then in the beginning of Acts, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Jesus is like, you're going to be my witnesses. This is the mission before you. But let me encourage you with this. Even though maybe at this time they were still processing and still trying to figure out, these brothers got it. These brothers, in the end, got it. And they did exactly what Jesus said. According to tradition, Simon Peter, A.D. 69. He's tortured in the Mamertine prison, and he's dragged to Nero's circus. Again, by tradition, he's crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be martyred in the same way as Jesus after watching his wife be crucified. Andrew, A.D. 70. Ministered in southern Russia, was eventually tied to an X-shaped cross where he died a slow, painful death over the course of three days. Tradition has it that he preached to the spectators who watched his execution. James, A.D. 44, Acts 12, killed by Herod, beheaded. Philip, believed in A.D. 54, uh, 54, he ministered in France, died of crucifixion and stoning. Bartholomew, in the year 70, ministered in Armenia. He was whipped until almost the entirety of his skin was removed and then crucified in agony. Thomas, speared to death by Hindu priests while sharing the gospel in India. Matthew, he preached Christ in Ethiopia. He was beheaded carrying out the last words that he recorded of Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations. James the less, he's thrown off the temple. It broke his legs and had his head crushed for not denying Christ. Thaddeus, in the year 70, executed as a martyr with arrows while preaching in eastern Turkey. Simon the Zealot, crucified upside down and then sawn in half, preached Christ in Persia. Matthias, ministered up to the far north Upon returning to Jerusalem, he was stoned to death. Paul, in the year 69, on the Ostine Way, just outside of the walls of Rome, he had his head chopped off. What do we make of these men? They denied themselves. They carried their cross. They followed him. As it says in Hebrews, of whom the world was not worthy. So let me remind you, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us clearly what you require of us and that you have enabled us and you have strengthened us. And I pray that you would strengthen us through the word of Christ even this morning to carry our cross, 
to see that all things around us just are pale in comparison to knowing you and following you. Oh, let the love of Christ drive us as we seek to be faithful disciples in these days. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.